The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. The scripture reading for this morning is from Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You may be seated. And if you guys are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join the volunteers by the children's kids zone sign in the back over in that corner. Sorry. guess it's going to stay there for today. That's the third time that's happened this morning. It's just one of those days. Um, we are concluding our study of Ecclesiastes this morning. I know some of you are excited about that because Ecclesiastes can be a little bit of a bummer. It's sort of this over and over and over again. You can't find meaning in wealth. You can't find meaning in pleasure. You can't find meaning in wisdom. You can't find meaning in work. You can't find meaning in relationships. You can't even find meaning in religion. And Solomon sort of just destroys all of the places that we would want to find meaning. And so it does get a little wearisome. Having the things that we tend to use for our identity, having them detonated in front of our very eyes. But he does that as a kindness in all of the work that he's done, all of the work that we've done has led up to this portion where he says, what does it all mean? And he says, I'm going to tell you very simply, what does it all mean right here? So as we answer the question, what does it all mean? Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for these people who would come and be warm and stuffy behind a mask because they want to experience your presence, because they want to worship, because they want to be blessed by the word. Would you give your Holy Spirit to those who are discouraged and doubting and depressed and anxious, for those who are addicted and shamed and overwhelmed. For those who need your comfort, would you be the God that we know you to be? And for those here, God, who don't know you, would you, by your Holy Spirit, powerfully move that they would see you for the first time even today? 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. My sister, she's about four years younger than me. She and her husband told this hilarious story to us where they were going on vacation. They had everything ready. They went to the airport. They were super excited. You know that feeling you have when you're just about to be away for a week. And they got all their stuff. They got to the airport in plenty of time. They get checked in. They go over. They sort of pick their spot out right by the gate. And then they do what we normally do. You know, you go and grab a snack. You maybe hit Starbucks. Uh, You go and grab an Us Weekly or something like that. And then you sit down and you kind of relax. And you've made it. And you're early. And you're not panicked. And you're just waiting on your flight. In fact, they were so relaxed. And they were enjoying their conversation. And they were enjoying their food. And sort of playing around on their phones. That even though they had gotten there really, really early, my sister sort of kind of started paying attention and looked up and was like, where is everyone? And so she walked up to the gate and said, hey, excuse me, we're waiting on a flight. Are we still in the right place? And she's, the, the attendant said, you mean the flight that just left? The flight that's right there backing out? And she's like, what do you mean? We've been here standing here the whole time. We were ready. We weren't even late. We weren't even rushed. We've been here the whole time. What are you saying? Our flight's left without us? And he's like, that's exactly what I'm saying. And she's like, well, how can you do that? How is that fair? We've been here the whole time. He said, ma'am, every single other person seemed to make it on that plane. You see, she had done what she was supposed to to make sure that she was ready, but she missed it anyways. And that's a little picture of what's going on here at Ecclesiastes is, is that you can look at the meaninglessness of work or of money or of religion. You can look at the meaninglessness of wisdom, of reputation. You can stare it down. All of those things, you can actually get the point of how meaningless it is and yet still miss the point, still miss the plane. And so Solomon doesn't want you to miss the point. He doesn't want you to miss the plane. And so after he poked holes in all these things, he's going to say, here's the point. Listen very carefully. Carefully, Here is the point. So I want you to open up your heart to the reality that God is speaking to you. Whether that's somebody who's been trusting in Jesus for a long time, that God has kindly poked holes in the things that you find meaning in, so that you will deepen in your understanding of who Jesus is, or whether it's you've not known God. You've been aloof, you've been distant from God, and you've thought he's been distant from you. And I want you to open up your heart to what this word might have to say to you. It doesn't matter how ready you are if you miss the point anyways. So first of all, he gives a friendly reminder in verse 8, which is not printed before you. He says, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity in verse 8. A famous philosopher once said this, it's often remarked that nothing we do now will matter in a million years. But if that is true, then by the same token, nothing will be the case in a million years matters now. In particular, it does not matter now that in a million years, nothing we do now will matter. Now it's a little bit of a jumbling of words, but he's saying after everything that he has considered, what he's realized is that Nothing we do now will ever matter in a million years. And because of that, it doesn't matter what you do now. And if we're not careful, that's what we think Solomon is saying. He comes to the end of this passage and then he says, vanity, vanity. The thing that he's been saying all along, vanity, vanity. All is vanity. And it sounds like he's saying, because you're going to die, 
because your vapor, because the things of this world can be so meaningless, nothing matters. But in fact, what Solomon is saying and what he makes clear right here at the end, because of that, because life is vanity and meaningless, everything that you do matters. Everything that you do matters. Well, I'm just going to whip through some of the things that he has told us about that we cannot find meaning in. He says we can't find meaning in our legacy. That's a hard one for me. He says no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered. He says you can't find meaning in the people that you leave behind. He says work is vanity. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. He's saying you pour your life into a career and then it ends up coming up short and it seems meaningless. He says, wisdom, wisdom itself is vanity. I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and madness and folly, but I learned this too is a chasing after the wind. Even trying to become wise is chasing after the wind. And then he said, pleasure is vanity. I denied myself nothing. My eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. And yet, after everything I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. It's meaning no matter how good of time you can craft for yourself, it won't make that ache inside go away. He even says, justice is vanity. Again, I looked at and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun, and I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. So he's saying even pursuing justice your whole life long will come up short because they have no comforter. So justice is vain. He says, wealth is vanity. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Then he says, power is vanity. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So he has gone through and just destroyed finding life and meaning and wealth and wisdom and justice and pleasure. And then shockingly, he says, even religion is vanity. Even religion is vanity. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. There is something else that occurs on earth that the righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This, too, I say, is meaningless. So he's even gone so far as to say even the religion, the ways that we craft our life and our faith around feeling better about ourselves, this, too, is vanity. And then lastly and most painfully, he says, life and death are meaningless. He says, as for human, God tests them so that they may see that they're like animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of other animals. The same fate awaits them both. The reason that I review all of that for you is to make sure that when he gives us the final point, you will realize what he is saying. Work, pleasure, wealth, reputation, power, justice, it's all vanity on this side of the sun. That means as hard as you work for the next 50 years, 
You can't create a life which will make you go, oh, this was it. This is what I worked for. And that can be such a bummer unless you know what he's trying to do, which is to try and tell you that those things can't make you whole, but there is something that can. He has told you all of the things of why you can't find meaning in those things. And then he shares this, why you can trust him. Look with me in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people with knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed, are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and of much study there is weariness of the flesh." The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Solomon has walked through each one of those things and said, now I want you to hear me, I want you to listen. He says, I looked, I searched. So we're supposed to understand that the words he's giving it to us are clear, they're honest, they're true, even sometimes they're painful. In verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. He's saying, I went and found all the right words so that you would know to fear God and to keep his commandments. And ultimately, even though Solomon in this epilogue is talking about his own words in Ecclesiastes, it points us ultimately to the scripture, which all the words are pointing us to someone in particular. But Solomon is saying, you can trust me. I am one of the wealthiest men in history. I am the wisest man in history. And whatever you're chasing won't fill you up. But he's saying, I do know what can. So he tells us that his words are clear and beautiful and honest, even if they're painful, pointing us, prodding us, which way to go. And some of us are in this place where we think, well, yes, I know what Christians say, and I know what Islam says, I know what Hinduism says, and they've all got good things, and I like this, and I really like this part of this, and you know what, I really like this part, and so I'm sort of going to craft a religion of taking good things that I like from good people, and I'm going to put them all together, and that way I'm going to agree with everything about my own faith. I can trust my own words. But what we need is Solomon, who have looked at all of this and unflinchingly honest about the human condition. Tim Keller says this, If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. He says the Bible is faithful. It will lead you. It may hurt you at times to get you where it needs to go, but it can be counted on. I've researched it is what he's saying. Your, your Bible can handle your questions. My son Connor is two years old and 11 months, so he's going to be three uh, not too long. But one of the cute things about Connor, he's the older of the twins, Connor multiple times a day walks up to me and says to me, Daddy, what time's it? What time's it? Now, this two-year-old has no idea of the concept of time. 
None whatsoever. And I don't know if that's just his little way of touching base or saying hi, but he says, Daddy, what time's it? What time's it? And at first I'd be like, oh, it's 11.37. Or he'd come in and I'd be like, oh, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And he always would say, oh, and then walk off like I've just told him something really informative for his day. But it occurred to me eventually that he had no idea what I was saying, no concept whatsoever. So I started messing with him, obviously. Daddy, what time is it? Oh, it's a rhino triangle chicken leg. Oh, and he'd walk off. Daddy, what time is it? Oh, it's Alpha Cheeseburger Movie Star. Oh, and off again he'd go. The point is, is that he knows the right question, but when he hears the answer, it doesn't mean anything to him. It doesn't make any more sense just because he asked the question over and over and over again. And some of us are like that. We'll stand at the door of Christianity and ask all the right questions. How can you be the only one into, way into heaven? How can we understand a loving God in the context of so much suffering? How can you be God when Christians have done so many horrible things and when God chose to answer us within the Scriptures, in Ecclesiastes, in all of the rest of it, we go, oh, and we walk off. What Solomon is saying here is Christianity has the gravitas to take your questions and take them seriously. That these are faithful words grounded in reality, grounded in a God who loves his people. It's so fun for our generation to just fire questions and fire cynicism at faith. But are we even waiting around for a legitimate answer? Solomon says, these are faithful words. You can trust them. They may hurt you sometimes, but you can trust them that they're getting you where you need to go. And so all of these things which we've talked about are supposed to expose the fact that they can't ultimately fill you up. And Solomon is saying, but I have done the research. I have looked into it. I do know what can. And this whole, he comes to it and says, here's what you do. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, for those of you in the room who don't trust Jesus, you went, I knew it was coming. All the song and dance. And at the end of the day, when you come down to the conclusion, it's about fear and obeying. I knew you were going to say that. And for those of you who are Christians, even though you and I ought to know better by accepting Christ's work on our behalf, we live out of the idea of, I'm afraid of God because I don't keep enough of his commandments. So either way, ultimately, it feels like this is the undoing. Yes, it couldn't be this, and it couldn't be that, and it couldn't be this, but the one thing it's supposed to do, I can't keep up with. Fear God and keep his commandments. But if you look closely at what Solomon is saying and ultimately what the Bible is saying, he's pointing you to something more. Fear is not kind of a slavish fear in this context. We hear fear and think of terror or a movie that's a horror movie, something that makes you afraid and shakes in your boots. But that's not what the Bible means by fear. It, fear it means this holy reverence and awe. Fear is when you see Moses stand before the Red Sea and all of the people cross on dry land. And then you turn around to see the Egyptians coming after you. And just as they're nearing coming after you, you see God take two walls of water and crash in on them, protecting you and your family, making sure you never have to go back to slavery. And when that water cross, 
crashes in on the people, that's when the people are, whoa. This holy reverence and awe, this sense that the one who is for me can take care of me. That's what fear is in this context. It's a holy reverence. It's a gratitude. It's awe. Alistair Begg says this, fear, love, and trust are ultimately the same thing. It's this thing that causes you to be in awe of God for what he's done for you. And what I want to show you is, ultimately, we don't have enough of that reverence, not because we're not afraid of him enough. It's because what we've tried to do is, oh, God wants us to be good, and we'll try and keep our sin count as low as we can. We'll try and manage our sin, and oh, we need him a little more today, a little less tomorrow. But when that's how you think of God, this person who comes and cleans up the remainder, that's how big your God is going to be. That's how big your fear and reverence is going to be. But when you actually take what is wrong with you, what is wrong with me, and you look at it honestly, stacked up and piled up as it is, saying, I am broken. I have said I'd stop sinning, and I can't. I've said I've stopped being addicted, but I can't. I said I would try harder, and I'm not even trying over and over again, and then you begin to see how much he has loved you, how your sin hasn't changed his affection for you one little bit, it's then that you start to have this reverence, this look at what he's done to rescue me. You see, it's by embracing how much we need help, how much we need grace, that fuels our fear of him, our healthy reverence and awe. It's okay to not be okay. We as those who follow Jesus are the people who can say, despite the things that I've done wrong and the things that have been done wrong to me, God is enough. God will be faithful. Marnie, our new director of community, when I was talking to her on the phone, sort of interviewing her, she asked me a question. Are you sure you want to hire somebody like me? And she said, all I have to give are my catastrophes. That's what fear is. Living in trust and love with the fact that God loves us so much, he made us his own, and he's going to use us despite of all of the sufferings and difficulties, all of our sin, because it's given by one shepherd. Trusting that God loves us. And then he says, if you love me, follow the commands. It says it right there in the text. The end of the matter, fear God and keep his commands. This is the whole duty of man. But he doesn't mean some slavish, get it right or I'm going to hit you. He means it like this. Jesus says it in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. We're used to this kind of love. Every once in a while, I'm sitting at night and I'm watching Yellowstone and I'm totally relaxed and I have no plans of getting up for two hours. And Aaron will be like, hey, babe, can you do something for me? And in my head, I think, maybe if I hold still, she won't see me. But she always asks like this. Hey, babe, because you love me so much, will you go, will you go do this? And even in my head, I'm like, oh! I get my rear end up off the couch, and I go and do it. Because she knows that I love her so much that I will go and do it. That's what he's saying here. Because you love me, live life in the way that I want you to live it. 
Live life in a way that honors God. Live life in a way that makes sense to your soul. He wants us to obey him out of love for him. But never obey him so that he will love you. It's he loves you so you can now be free to obey. There are some of us here that think, I don't know what God wants for me. I don't know what God wants for my career, my love life. I don't know why God won't talk to me. I don't know why God won't lead me. I don't know if I can trust God. Well, the whole Bible, even Ecclesiastes, is pointing us to something more. Jesus says it in the New Testament, John 5, 39. He's talking to a group of people that would have taken great pride in how much they understood the Bible, how much they understood texts, even like Ecclesiastes. And Jesus says this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is saying is that all that you read in the Exodus and in Genesis, in the law and the prophets, in the wisdom literature and Ecclesiastes, all of it is about me. It all points to me. It all ends here in me. But these people who have looked at the Bible and have all their questions and have all their answers have missed that. And he's saying, you want to know what the Bible is about? It's about me. So I want to hear that again. Fear God and keep his commandments. Ultimately, that's found its fullness in Christ. Here's why. It says in verse 14, to end the book, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's saying at the end of time, there'll be this throne room, this powerful judge, and God will lay before each person all of the things they did in in real time, in real life, and hidden in secret. All of those things, judgment will come on all of them. And he's saying, are you ready for that? You've done all the preparing, but are you ready for that? It says this in Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. It's one of those terrifying pictures in the Bible of a great courtroom scene And basically, you're supposed to envision yourself in it. And the judge is going to look at you and say, Have you done enough? Have you lived? Have you loved? Have you tried? Have you done enough? Are you ready to answer that question? But again, if the whole Bible is pointing towards Jesus, we see that really Jesus is the one who comes and says, because they didn't fear God, because they didn't keep my commandments, I will be punished. I will be treated like one who doesn't fear God, like one who doesn't keep commandments. I will stand in their place. Remember when Jesus was crucified, the whole world went dark. Total darkness from noon till three. And when I knew about that story, for the longest time, I thought that was sort of the darkness was showing how mad God was at the Jews and the Romans at that time for killing Jesus. That he was showing his displeasure that his son was dying. But Tim Keller pointed out to me, it's always Tim Keller, 
He says that darkness during daytime is a judgment of God. And he uses the example of the Exodus. The Lord said, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. In other words, I thought he was upset at the people who are killing Jesus and what God is actually doing when the sky turns dark is he's pouring his wrath out on his son, emptying himself of his wrath for addicts and sinners and self-righteous and selfish. He's emptying out his wrath on him, pouring the darkness of God's justice onto Jesus so there will be nothing left for you. He gets treated like one who doesn't fear God and doesn't keep commandments. And you get numbered among those that fear God and keep commandments every time. In, the, in that room, the court case, the final scene, instead, for those of you who find what Ecclesiastes points you to, what the Bible points you to, which is Jesus you will hear, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And listen to this down in 32 and 33. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Courtroom, here we go. Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. There's the song we sang earlier, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. There's a line in there. It says, while I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne. When I was a little kid singing in church and hearing that, see thee on thy judgment throne, it used to terrify me. That that's the day I'm going to be dealt with. See thee on thy judgment throne. But when you're hidden in Christ, God has already poured out the punishment for your sin and my sin on his son on the cross and emptied himself of his displeasure ultimately on him so that when someday I see him on the judgment throne, I can not only make it, but I can smile. Jesus earned it for me to be there. God has to forgive me and wants to anyway because Jesus earned it. It changes the way that the judge looks at you. We'll close here. There's a judge named Frank Caprio. Some of his cases uh, are shown on TV. He's an older judge, and he likes letting people off easy. Recently, he had a 94-year-old man come in who was charged with a speeding ticket. And he said, Mr. K, you're charged with a school zone violation. You're charged with a violation, which means you're exceeding the speed limit in a school zone. And this old man who's brittle with sort of a shaky voice says, I don't, I don't drive that fast. I'm 96 years old, and I drive slowly. And I only drive when I have to. You see, I was going to get blood work done on my son. He's handicapped. And I was taking him to the doctor's office. I'm taking him for blood work, because now he's got cancer. You could hear a pin drop in the courtroom. 
94-year-old man taking his 76-year-old son to the doctor because he loves his son. The judge looked at him and said, you are a good man. You are a good man. I wish you all the best, and I wish the best for your son, and I wish you good health, and your case is dismissed, and God bless you and thank you. You see, the judge was so in awe of the beauty and the blessing and the, the goodness that he acquitted him of all charges. And what the gospel says to you is Jesus looks at you and he sees the son in all of his beauty and all of his goodness and all of his righteousness and he looks at the son and says, you are now acquitted in him. If you've never put your trust in that, I encourage you, don't let another day go by. Do it this morning. Say, Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for your sacrifice. Let me find rest in you. But for those of you who already know, remember all of the things that we try and find pleasure in. All of the things that we're looking for meaning in. And he's saying, you are safe with me. Hidden in my son. He wants us to know that he's looking at us saying, you are a good man and a good woman. And I know you'll have health and your case is dismissed. God bless you. Don't you want to hear that acquittal? It's already yours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're tempted to be afraid of you in the wrong way. And instead of being in awe of you, we keep our distance from you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work to encourage and validate and give hope to the Christians in the room like me who so often get lost in vanity and meaninglessness. That you would focus our eyes on your son Jesus. And for those who haven't yet met you, I pray God for your grace. That your Holy Spirit would work powerfully that they would long for the acquittal that only you can give. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.